Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. How does a person wind up in prison? What is the exact moment in a child's life that determines that outcome for them? Is it their environment? Their curiosity? The circumstances they're forced into? And once their fate is sealed, is there any hope for redemption? Will anyone ever forgive them? Can they forgive themselves? Can a person really change over time? On today's episode, you'll hear the voices of author Shaka Senghor, criminal justice reform advocate Mark Maurer, and an interview with trap music legend Tip T.I. Harris. Yeah, Tip, what's up, man? Yo, Thank you. Man, what's happening with you, man? Man, it's an honor. I'm, I'm glad to be able to connect with you, man, and, and man, just show my support and extend uh, whatever resources I can to you, man, on, on, on behalf of me and my team. Oh man, that, that, um, it's, it's an honor. It's an honor for me. I'm just just to lay out the scene. I'm on, I'm, I'm sitting on a locker right now on a tier, and uh, you know, I mean, it's just surreal. So, I mean, thank right. you for uh, taking this. Uh, if you hear the uh, you know the loudspeaker and uh, just a few yells in the background, you know, man. it's just texture. Baby. It's, I, it's, I'm it's familiar. I'm familiar. I'm not familiar with the circumstances, but I am familiar with the environment. Ti has had his legal troubles over the years. In 2004, he served a short sentence for violating probation and giving false information. In 2009, he served time for a federal weapons charge. He served an 11-month sentence starting in 2010 on drug charges. In that time, he's also helped with Hurricane Katrina relief efforts, worked with troubled youths in Atlanta, provided scholarships for single-parent families, and has held speaking engagements at middle grade and high schools in Georgia. You're the guy with a lot going on, and yet you dedicate a lot of your time to this podcast and yeah. research and prepping. And I mean, this podcast thing must be about something. If it's not just a check, I mean, but it's more, <laughs> right? It allows me to to use my influence and inform people on matters that they might not be uh, as as abreast on. And I, I think that that kind of can can galvanize the generation to move all collectively in one direction that'll, that'll allow us the kind of growth and evolution that I feel is necessary. So I'm on my 19th year of incarceration, and along the way, you know, I learned to write and, you know, started publishing articles, and then, you know, a talent agency picked me up, and, uh, and they got me this show, like, you know, so, but Dope. what we're trying to do with this is a collect call from Sing Sing is we're trying to just have real conversations from the inside with, you know, me talking to people like yourself, famous people, but we're also, but, but real people, but we're also having my, I'm having like people in my, my peers in here call in and uh, basically, you know, just show the purpose of the show is just to show that people are just people and we don't have fangs in here, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's just one of my purposes for the show. So, you know, that's just, 
and I think you're on the same vibe. When I heard when I heard some of what you were kicking with with Shopping and Gore, like I mean, like you, you know, you guys are talking some real shit there. Like, you know, I yeah. really appreciated that. I mean, bro, I think that, you know, in order for us to actually approach some level of significant change, man, we have to have the tough discussions. We have to, you know, look at everything as a case by case on a case by case basis and not, you know, just kind of group people into criminals and drug dealers and, you know, even murderers or whatever. I mean, because the circumstances uh, sometimes can explain what you see that on black and white might not look so well. Um, I mean, you know, you can refer back to movies like A Time to Kill. You dig what I'm saying? So the circumstances kind of justified the outcome. You dig? And that's, of course, you know what I'm saying, exceptions are made for exceptional circumstances, but you have to evaluate them on a case-by-case basis. Because, I mean, look, man, just given... Given the the nation in which we live, okay, this is America, and America itself has been proven guilty and admitted guilt in uh, a lot of the things that people like us who look like us are being held accountable for to the highest degree. So I think, you know what I'm saying, we can't ask more of, of of our citizens than we asked of our government. You two have a podcast here. At Podcast One, I listened to some of your interviews with Alex Jones and Shaka Senghor. Shaka Senghor is an author, college lecturer, and director's fellow of the MIT Media Lab. Shaka grew up in Detroit in the 1980s. He ran away from an abusive home at the age of 14 and joined the violent, illegal drug trade. In 1991, he shot and killed a man in a drug deal. He spent 19 years behind bars in Michigan. Seven of those years were in solitary confinement. He was released from prison in 2010. In 2015, he began teaching as a part of the Atonement Project, which aims to reconcile those who have committed crimes with those who have felt their impact. The following year, he published his memoir, Writing My Wrongs, which was featured on Oprah's Super Soul 100 list of visionaries and influential leaders. And so when I got into writing the book, you know, I thought back to what I really felt when I got shot and not the interpretation of, you know, how somebody feels when they got shot. Like, you know, you listen to 50 Cent and he talked about, I got shot nine times and blah, 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 but what he doesn't say, and this is no knock to him because I, you know, I really respect what he's doing and, and who he's become. But what it, what I, I say to the, to the young guys growing up is I can promise you in that moment, like he wasn't thinking about writing a rap song. He was thinking about surviving. And for me, you know, after I got shot, I was in survival mode, and I began to carry a gun because I didn't feel safe. And it's hard to tell your friends when you're standing on the corner that you don't feel safe when a car rides down a block. You know, and so we use different language to make it seem like we're tough and we're hard. But in reality, we're, you know, I was a, I was a scared little boy, you know, and, and living this adult life in this adult world. And, you know, the, the reality is that hurt people hurt people. Like, people say that a lot but they really, really put some depth to what that means. But I experienced trauma at a very early age, and then there was a series of traumas that was was consistent throughout my life, you know, from getting shot, from getting beat, to getting jumped. Um, and I know that those things rewired the way that I saw life and, and the way that I saw, you know, feeling safe in my own community. And so for me, carrying a gun 
it was a logical conclusion at that age, especially when I had been in an environment where so many of my friends had been shot. You know, in my family alone, eight people have been shot. My oldest brother's been shot twice. He's currently paralyzed. My older brother's been shot. Uh, several cousins, one cousin's been shot multiple times, and then he committed suicide. And so just the pervasiveness of gun violence in the culture I grew up in makes you feel unsafe. We'll hear more from Shaka Singor in a future episode. The conversation between John and T.I. begins to hit its stride when John touches upon the subject of forgiveness and an old friend of Tip's named Cap. They just give us these tablets in here. So I've been Ooh. in jail 19 years now, so I never slid my finger across any uh, tablet. So they just gave us these right. tablets. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, yo, they got you on with Tip. Like, we got Tip uh, T.I. So I'm like, so I started downloading some of your, uh, some, of, some of your older tracks, you know what I mean? And, uh, and coming off... And coming off this, uh, no, but w- w- the one that resonated with me most, and it's really a testament that you really know both sides of this game here. You know, check it. So it's like from one storyteller to another, like I really dig the memoir vibe on the track, you know, Still Ain't Forgave Myself. Oh, man. From, uh, I mean, if Jeff, you could cue that up just like for 15 seconds because we want to violate any, any laws here. Nah, like, man, I think, let, let I, think I can little, sign little, off on that yeah, let's feel that for a moment there. I mean, just so you know, man, I was in my cell bumping that shit for, uh, I mean, like, we got this little wire I hook up to my radio, and I, I was, like, scrolling down, and I had these headphones on, and I was just... I was just bumping that shit, and, like, dudes were coming up to my bars, and they were like, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm a, you know, a white boy from Brooklyn, like, so they're like, what you know about that? <laughs> that job? But, but also, you know, but on, you know, just, just, just like, you know, uh, but you know both sides of this, and you said there were three in prison, one doing life. Well, that was 18 days. years ago, so that was like, I made that track in 2000. It was released in 2001, but I think I actually recorded it in 2000. So, um, okay, so the the specific, yeah, right on. That was my very first album, the very first song on my very first album, which uh, still is probably the most personal song that I've you know made up to date. Uh, When I just throughout my career, man, I had records like I Still Love You, uh, records like Dead and Gone, records like. Uh, man, so many. But I'm just your saying, boy Cap, your, your boy Cap, where's he at? The man, he locked up at? Cap, man, Cap actually died, bro. The end of the end of last year. Um, he died. He died in the joint. I mean, and he died. You know, he had a a warrior's death. If, if you know wow. what I'm saying, if I yeah. if if that makes any sense to you, Ti's friend. Terrence Cap Beasley was sentenced to life in prison in 2000, but was released on parole in 2006. However, in 2009, Beasley was involved in an aggravated assault case for allegedly helping rapper Killer Mike during a fight. His parole was revoked, and he returned to prison in 2011. Beasley passed away in prison on December 5, 2019. It was reported that his death was not from natural causes.
Sorry, man, because that was your boy. Like, yeah, like, that was my I brother. Love. Definitely was. Definitely was. That was my brother. Probably the the most sturdy person I've ever met. You know what I mean? Um, but you know how politics, how you know how prison politics work. And, 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 I'm sick of it right now, bro. Yeah, yeah and I you know, for the most most of his most of his tenure, he did what twenty one years. You know, what I'm saying he died on his twenty first year, and you know, most of the politics they 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 work on they work on like the person that you're dealing with because there's certain people who are exempt to the politics because some people are grandfathered into an old way of doing things. You dig what I'm saying? Uh, and I think he, he basically he started doing time before the gangs kind of became prevalent in the system of right. Georgia. Right. So, right. you know, what I'm saying most of the gangs, you know, what I'm saying they operate how they operate. But then they get to him and then, you know, what I'm saying it's an exception made because of who he is, how long he started doing time. And, you know, what I'm saying so. Uh, he, he ain't, he's a, oh, he ain't really trying to hear that. And like when and, and when he. So basically, for real, it's like you know what I'm saying we gonna roll or you know shit. Yeah. But I, I don't report to nobody, and I don't you know what I'm saying I'm not I'm not answering to nobody, and you know I think that That's, that was his mind frame. That was absolutely that was definitely his mind frame. That was his set. That was his makeup, and 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 he and he stood on that, and he stood on that to you know what I'm saying to the to the bitter end. Uh, I think. Everybody have a decision, man. Whether they want to, whether they want to compromise, or whether they rather die about it. And I think you know what I'm saying. That was that was that was his decision to make, and that's the decision he made, and that's how that's how it was handled. That's I mean, that's just from what I've heard of of the circumstances. When I when I when I like what I am today, I made myself, but I still ain't forgave myself. I mean, those lyrics resonated with me because when I hear that, I think of this career I made for myself, like in prison. And but I'm still in prison, always like sort of trying, always reminded by you know by like my crime, the man I killed. And you know, you talk a lot about accountability. Like you, you, you have, you know, I think twenty year old, you know, for you know about to be forty, you know, could tell twenty year old tip a few things. I think each of our forty year old selves can tell our twenty year old selves, you know, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and just like you know, you know, it just made me think of. You know, just like just like the burden I carry with me, and and you know, I I, I kind of have my little self-realizing moments through my writing. Sure. You know what I mean? For me, writing was like self. It was a self-realizing journey. It was wrong for me to diminish like you know, my culpability uh, by saying, "Dude, I killed was a criminal and a killer," uh, and then be like, "I'm more than a murderer." Look at me. I'm I'm more than a murderer. Look at me now. But like. It, it was it was tough to it was tough to, it was it was hard to to, to to come to that realization you know because in prison sure. is you know it's just it's just it's just rationalization you know what I mean well, let me and, ask you. Uh, sure was your life threatened at the time you committed the murder you know it's a good it's a good question like I, I I'll say this no on on a, on a on a on a on a level that you would think. That like is he coming at me with the gun? Am I am I tussling with it? And and you know does he get a, a few in the gut? Like no, that that's not that's not what happened. Right. What happened was uh, you know I'm in, I'm fully immersed in the lifestyle, and uh, he is too. And 
this is my boy and 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 at times it's sometimes you know it's 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 the life and he you know he was having a rough time himself his father just died and he was a little you know kind of like fucked up and he was you know he's robbing a lot of dudes and i found out he he robbed you know my you know one of my workers and and i and i basically you know i i i drove him you know I, you know it was it was a take a ride kind of moment and um and 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 that's what happened you know it was it was you know so it wasn't you know in, in the eyes of the law it was certainly wasn't you know uh you know sort of self to uh, self defense but and, you know, well, I mean, I circumstances can kind of grow to a place, right? So if you take a ride, right, and you basically want to have a conversation with him so he could do the right thing, and during that conversation, you know what I'm saying, he could make some sort of advance that would cause for you to do something that you didn't necessarily intend to do. You see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, but I don't I, know I, the full circumstances of the scope. I'm just speaking yeah, this out. If I was your attorney, you dig what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how, I, and I spend a lot of time around attorneys. I think because, you know, yeah, they always yeah, tell me that man, you you had you had a future as an attorney, man. If you this whole selling crack thing didn't right. work out for you, uh, <laughs> but but nah, man. I mean, I, I think that I think there's a lot to be said of the environment because, the, like for instance, right? Let's say you're in the military. You dig what I'm saying? If you're in the military, you're conditioned, your mindset, how you live, how you think, you know what I'm saying? Like you're conditioned uh, right. to, 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 to go home by any means. And the environment will determine whether or not you have to commit certain acts in order to make it home. You dig what I'm saying? So I think that our communities have been made, I mean, have been made in such a way that, you know, this shit is like a war zone. This shit is like a war zone. Yeah, but I the mean, people who are evaluating our circumstances, they don't live in that war zone, so they don't understand no, the yeah. conditioning of the mind that has to take place in order to survive, you know what I'm saying, in certain, in, 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 in certain environments. As the conversation continues, John manages to pique Tip's curiosity, and he begins asking for more context of what landed John in prison, maybe getting some unexpected answers. So the gentleman that you that you that you killed, you said that you you said you're a white man from Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm, I'm white. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in you know in the projects. I grew up in gotcha. you know Hell's Kitchen, and I'm I'm you know I'm. <laughs> like I've been around. I'm not like you know, so you grew up like a yeah. so you, you grew up like like a like a a poverty-stricken minority, but you just happen to be a white guy. Right. I mean, I've had my opportunities, but, yeah, like, I grew up in a housing project, and basically I was, you know, I mean, I had my opportunities. I went looking for this life. I grew up in Hell's Kitchen. I was very, you know, enamored by the uh, the lifestyle, you know what I mean? And uh, I went looking for this, you know, on some accountability shit. Like, I, I really went looking for this lifestyle, um, but there was a void there, you know, like you, you know, sort of not, not blaming it, but and not sort of rationalizing why, but there was, you know, the, fa the father's home, my father, you know, he died with a barrel in his mouth, and, you know, and it was just like that void, you know, and, and when we moved over to uh, to Hell's Kitchen, we had this, like, had this, like, backdrop of, like, gangster culture and, and the Westies and, you know, all that kind of shit, mm. and I was just so, it was just such a pivotal time for me, and uh, my mother lost me to, to the corner, you know, and it's just to the, to the block, and, and it was just, it was just, I really... 
I really went out looking for this lifestyle. I mean, a lot of, I mean, I, I hash it out in a lot of my writings, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's been cathartic for me, you know, and here, what I do in here is I tell, I tell the stories of my peers through a journalistic lens, you know, and I think mass incarceration, you know, advocating for violent offenders is the whole new wave of, of criminal justice reform. Like, you know, just to contextualize it for a moment, you know, I sent you a, I'll put it out there. Yeah, law professor James Foreman Jr., he says, we can release every nonviolent drug offender tomorrow and would still lock up more people uh, than any other nation. I mean, so, like, the, the point is, I guess with that quote, and, and I have more for you, but, like, it's just, and I'm sure you know about him. I mean, Jay said about, uh, Jay-Z talked about it even after Michelle Alexander came out with, you know, her book in 2010, The New Jim Crow. Basically, you know, what about the violent offenders? Like, basically, you know, you got, how, how long is enough, you know, uh, for, you know, I got peers that are kind of on the tier right now looking at me talking to you, and, and, they, and they have, uh, you know, they committed murders in, the, in their teen years, and, you know, basically they, they got decades in. I mean, decades in. The Supreme Court has ruled that, you know, the brain is just not functioning. The frontal lobes are just, like, working on you know, working at a different sort of, you know, time frame than, uh, than, than, you know, somebody that has fully developed. So I guess, like, with these stories, I try to put a narrative to these larger issues. And right. sometimes, you know, that's what we're talking about on this podcast. Before we go any further, let's meet Mark Maurer. He is the executive director of the Sentencing Project. They advocate for criminal justice reform and address racial inequality in the U.S. criminal justice system. The one thing we know about involvement in crime is that people age out of the high crime years. Um, <clears throat> what we see is that in the mid-teen years, 15, 16 or so, young boys particularly, but young girls as well, uh, have a much higher risk of involvement in crime. And this risk rises until the late teens, early 20s. But then it comes down quite dramatically after that. So by the time someone's in their late 20s, 30s, certainly 40s, 50s or so, their risk to public safety is dramatically reduced from what it was for that teenage person. Um, and, you know, this is a, we can demonstrate this in criminology, but. Anyone uh, who's been a parent has had a teenager know this. You know, teenage boys, teenage girls do crazy things, and most of the crazy things they do don't lend them up in prison, uh, but some do, and most people grow out of that period because they grow up. They become adults. They get jobs. They get families. They have careers. And they find that being an adult is more satisfying than hanging out with their friends on the street corners. We'll hear more from Mark Mauer down the line. Let's take it to Georgia for a moment. Like inmates who, who receive a life sentence for a serious crime committed before January. Yeah. Well, you know my brother Cap. You know my brother Cap. Man, he had he was serving he was serving life plus five and had been uh, denied uh, parole and he had he had um, he had some you know what I'm saying some evidence that 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 kind of showed that he hadn't been tried properly. We got him a new trial. And, you know, I kind of go back and forth with myself because in the midst of the time that he was like, we got him a new trial, you know what I'm saying? So at that point he got a bond, you know what I mean? So we got him out and we were, 
You know, and everything. Oh, yeah, I got him a reversal. Yeah, we got him a reversal. He lost the he lost that one too. But I think that <clears throat> he had a lot to do. Like he, he, he <clears throat> how can I say this? Yeah. I no, mean, I he I he kind of got his presentation of himself. You know what I'm saying? Kind of convicted him. The way he presented himself to the court, I believe, kind of like that was the second conviction. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I believe. Uh, yeah. And I think the fact that I wasn't there because I had went back to prison on my second on my second bid yeah. for my violation, so I wasn't kind of there to right. quarterback them. the situation to where he, you know, what I mean, I'm kind of the uh, how do I say? I'm the politically correct one. You know what I'm saying? I'm the one who kind of can figure out, you know, how to present these circumstances in a way that would be more favorable to you more favorable to you rather than more detrimental to you. And if I'm not there, and I think he kind of had to, you know, go at it just, you know what I'm saying, on his basic understanding. And, all right, so i tell you what happened. So he went to a party. Uh, he went to a party, and he had a gun at the uh, the patio door because a gun had been pulled on him before he left the party. He was asked to leave the party. A gun was pulled on him. So he goes and... Um, uh, arms himself and comes back because he has a cousin and his best friend was still in there. And after the gun was pulled on him, he didn't know if they were going back to, to, you know, to draw down on his, on his cousin and his, and his partner. So we come back and he opened the door with a gun in his hand, a shotgun and says, Hey, listen, man, I just want my cousin and my partner, just let them out and we good. And you know what I'm saying? I guess words were exchanged and whatnot. And he, and, not knowing the status of where his cousin in the war, he shot in the air. Boom. Let my cousin them out of here. All right. So after, now that's on the outside of the patio door. On the inside of the patio door, someone slid another someone a gun. This uh, uh, about a 25. So it's a guy outside with a 12 gauge. Someone slide a gentleman, a 25. And the guy who got the 25 started shooting that cap and hit him in the leg. Uh, and the pants that we submitted as evidence shows that he was hitting the leg. After he got sh- after he got shot at, then Cap returned fire and ultimately killing the person who shot at him. Now, by the time the ambulance and the police got there, that gun that was slid to him wasn't there. So right. it seems as though you just murdered someone in cold blood, but it ain't like. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you removed evidence from the scene. That's what got him the. That's what got him the uh, the reversal, because we showed the pants. We showed it, and then I think his um his lawyer, his previous representation at the time, did not present like you know what I'm saying the evidence on his behalf. All that shit. Okay, cool. So when he got the second trial, so now the second trial, he said, well. This man has a right to defend himself because you walked up. But see, you I, like there's law that says you can't do that. Like you can't make me guilty from the beginning. Like the burden of proof, you know what I'm saying, is on the state, not not on me. Right. All right. So that was his. So that was his, so he was working on his second conviction to get it overturned. And I think it, they didn't answer his his motion or something like that. He had submitted some shit. They didn't answer to it. And then his parole got denied. And he just kind of like, you know what I'm saying, got lost in. in he went from, I'm expecting, I'm ready, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on my way home to kind of like, man, fuck it, I'm in here. So I'm, I'm doing what I got to do while I'm in here. Uh, so I, there is a level of desperation, like, after, like, 20, 
you know, something years of, uh, you know, I could relate with that desperation sometimes of like, you know, like, damn, like, I mean, I, I, I kind of like, you know, I, I, I became accountable, you know, for what I did. Like I kind of like laid up, laid it up with the fight and with the courts and it was just like, look, man, this is what it is. This is what happened. This is what I did. And then, you know, like, you know, I just started this focusing on, 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 you know, on me, but I can identify like with a, with a, a lot of dudes, like, you know, that's just, that's just, you know, it's it's the fight, you know, especially with when they have those circumstances. It, you you get caught up with the facts of that narrative, and it's just like, and in the law books, and then nothing else matters. And then what happens is, there becomes such a sort of bitter resentment when, you know, nothing goes your way, and it becomes, and they're, you know, things become bottled up, and that's that's how you know prison become a, a dangerous can become a dangerous place. No. And then when you have no hope, you, you you're giving it up like cap. Like, that's what happened. And there's plenty of, you know, there's a few caps. In here. Yeah, I mean, when motherfuckers reach that fucking home. stage, when you know what I'm saying, you got somebody who already in yeah. desolate, in a, a desolate situation, stage. and then somebody reached the stage of fuck it. You have but, one minute left. Well, they not even, they not even willing to fight for themselves. I mean, I think that's, that's a, that's a, that's a horrible place to be for anyone. Would Cap have had a different outlook if there was a 20-year limit on his sentence? Would it have changed his focus from how can I get out to how could I have done things different? It's hard to find hope when you're surrounded by chaos. Yo, man, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, man. But well, I appreciate uh, it. I appreciate, yeah, no, I appreciate you coming here and uh, on this show. And, uh, you know, this is it, man. This man, was, uh, this listen, stay up, man. Hopefully stay encouraged. Stay encouraged, yeah. man. Keep fighting and con- continue to make yourself better every day and then the light will come. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. I'm going to be right down, you know, I'm going to be right <laughs> I see, I see you on this side. All right, man. All right, man. Love and respect, brother. Yeah. I know I could have told Cap not to kill, shout Put down a gun, get in the car, let him live, shout So Tip had some guests for his own show, but I appreciate him opening up about his friend Cap. I've been around guys in prison who grew up with guys who made it in the rap game. And I have to say, it's rare that the big-time rapper actually comes back around to help their old friend with money for a lawyer and all that. T.I. did that for Cap. And I feel like T.I. gave us the untold next chapter to the Still Ain't Forgave Myself track he recorded 19 years ago. Cap's story was a sad one, but one I'm grateful T.I. shared with us. One thing's for certain, T.I. did his part as a friend. I think he can... uh, forgive himself now. Please tune in next week to This is a Collect Call from Sing Sing. This is a Collect Call from Sing Sing is produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Faquette, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at JohnJLennon1, and check out his work at JohnJLennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The caller has hung up.